Welcome to episode 48 in the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. In last week's show, we discussed the November 30th monk debate in Toronto and how it was connected to the subsequent release of the first installment of the Twitter files two days later. This week, we're going directly to the second installment of the Twitter files, released December 8th, because, and this was an unexpected surprise, it had an almost direct connection to the Justice Center. Near the top of that release, about Twitter suppression, Dr. J. Bhattacharya was named as someone who had been put on a Twitter trends blacklist. And following that, Elon Musk tweeted out that the suppression of information around COVID-19 will be released, to use his words, big time. And now we find out that Elon Musk invited Dr. Bhattacharya to Twitter headquarters to discover firsthand more about his suppression on the platform. And Dr. Bhattacharya has promised to publicly reveal what he finds. Well, John, we know Dr. Bhattacharya, don't we? He was one of our expert witnesses in the uh, gateway court action against lockdowns in the province of Manitoba. And he presented his medical and scientific evidence in that case and uh, has been available in other cases as well. He is from Stanford. He is one of the three co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which sadly was not followed by, by governments urging that, that we focus on protecting the minority of people who are truly threatened by COVID, which is people that are elderly and sick with one or two or three serious health conditions. Dr. Bhattacharya and the co-authors have said that um, we should focus on protecting the vulnerable while not harming you know, children by <laughs> keeping them away from school and from playgrounds and from sports and from socializing and from ever, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, yeah. like the, the amount of harm that we've inflicted on children in the past uh, almost three years is just, it, it, it's mind blowing to think about how, because of technology, the, the kids are already not seeing each other in person as much as what would be healthy uh, we know this from the, the medical literature pre-lockdowns. It, it was an established fact, still is a fact, that we as human beings need social, we need in-person contact with other people. Just very recently, I had a bunch of uh, Justice Center lawyers and paralegals and admin and communications. Uh, it, we, we got together for a Christmas party, and it was wonderful. Now, we could have done the same thing via Zoom or, t or Teams or Skype or whatever, right? But it wouldn't have been, it just wouldn't have, wouldn't have been as good, you know, watching a bunch of faces on a, on a two-dimensional computer screen. There's no substitute for connecting in person, you know, whether that's like a, a house of worship, a synagogue, mosque, temple, church, whether it's friends, whether it's family whether it's uh, social, recreational, uh, political, whatever. So all this harm inflicted on our children and adults by forcing everybody into isolation, and that could have been prevented by people engaging in scientific discussion. 
because even if you disagree with Dr. J. Bhattacharya, you know, there are, there are well-meaning, intelligent, thoughtful people that uh, think that lockdowns were the right way to go. You know, the, the absence of scientific debate is just very toxic and it's very harmful uh, because even if lockdowns were great, why would we deprive ourselves of the benefit of, of exploring the, the counter arguments saying that lockdowns were terrible? Agreed, 100%. But I will say we did have a Zoom 2021 George Jonas Award dinner via Zoom back then when everything was shut down. And Dr. Jay Bhattacharya delivered, I think, the opening remarks in that. And so that is recorded, and I will link to that so people can listen to him directly as he addressed us back then, of course. And uh, yeah, so we have the benefit of that. And that's just another connection that I wanted to bring up. The stuff on, on Twitter, like reading here a tweet from Barry Weiss, W-E-I-S-S, December the 9th, and it's shocking to read on her tweet, Barry is, is, a, is a lady, Barry Weiss, that Twitter was shadow banning, uh, also known as visibility filtering. So Twitter was blocking hashtag searches and uh, other searches and preventing certain items from going onto the trending pages and controlling amplification. Now, that might be okay from the standpoint, if if Twitter was truly just a, a private entity, like, like let's say like the Justice Center, for example, right? The Justice Center, we're, we're putting out our, our stuff and our viewpoint on our website page. We're not pretending to be this public forum that hosts public debate and where all people of all views and all perspectives uh, are, you know, using the Justice Center website to communicate with each other and, and so that we just facilitate the debate. Okay. So the problem with, with Twitter has been that on, on the one hand, they present themselves as this platform that, you know, everybody can go and you can get all the, you can read up on all these different viewpoints and you can debate people but then at the same time, engaging in this uh, shadow banning or visibility filtering and targeting Jay Bhattacharya specifically, Twitter secretly placed him on a trends blacklist, which prevented his tweets from trending. So that, that's disingenuous. That's dishonest. If you're going to behave like a group with a, a viewpoint, obviously pro-lockdown viewpoint, uh, pro-government narrative viewpoint, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, uh, COVID's as bad as the Spanish flu of 1918. There are no cures or remedies for COVID other than lockdowns and vaccinations. Lockdowns are wonderful and save lives. Uh, lockdowns cause minimal harms. The vaccine is safe. The vaccine is effective. Everybody should be required to, to take it. Uh, the Nuremberg Code is not being violated. Everything in the past 30 seconds, that's the government's narrative. Now, if Twitter is going to promote the government's narrative, and they have, that's fine. They're entitled to do that. But then don't pretend to be this open public forum type of a platform. Be honest about it. Be your open platform and then be truly open. Or just fess up and admit that you are biased and you do have a viewpoint and you're going to promote your viewpoint. One or the other, right? But it's disingenuous what, what they've done, Twitter. Well, it's a little more than that, I would say, because what's come out in subsequent Twitter files are 
the facts that they've been, they were meeting with the FBI, they were meeting with government officials, mm-hmm. and that they were taking directions from the government on who to censor. Now, we don't have, at the time of this recording, the information on how they were doing this regarding COVID information that Elon Musk has said in a tweet that it is coming big time, but we don't have it as we're recording this. If it turns out, then of course we're talking about government censorship because it's more than just being a you know private company being disingenuous. It's it's a a government entity at that point, and it becomes as some people have called it the biggest story in the last ten years. Yeah, and I think uh, you know Matt Taibbi said something similar at the end of the Musk debate that we to- we quoted last week. So the Musk yeah, debate, could, the Musk debate, not yeah. the Musk debate. Right. Sorry. <laughs> Elon Musk Musk runs Twitter, and then we have the Munk, M-U-N-K, Munk debates in uh, in Canada. Yeah. Oh, I agree. That's a whole, that's taking it to a whole new level of of seriousness and concern. If you have a government agency that starts instructing companies like Twitter or Facebook on what to ban or or not ban and how to ban things, how to how to suppress certain viewpoints. Uh, it's particular. It's even more scary in Canada because we have government-funded media in Canada. You know, honestly, why would you expect uh, any government-funded media to write an unbiased story about ivermectin? Uh, if you were unbiased, you would, of course, you would cover the government's viewpoint and say, "Well, you know, the government claims that uh, ivermectin is just completely useless, zero uh, percent success, not even worth trying." They, they don't say it in in quite those words, but that's essentially, you know, the government is very strong on stay the hell away from ivermectin. So a a fair-minded, balanced media story would definitely include the government's viewpoint, but then they would go to the other side. They would find people that have taken ivermectin when they were sick with COVID and that had a very rapid change for the better. And and, uh, the the symptoms went away within a matter of, of hours or within a half day. I, I personally know uh, lots of people that were sick with COVID and that took ivermectin with vitamin C, vitamin D, and uh, and got better, got much, much better very quickly. Now, that doesn't turn it into a scientific fact. This At this point, it's merely anecdotal evidence. Uh, but there are many medical papers written by doctors, peer-reviewed, that are available, that people can look up and read on ivermectin. And so an unbiased media story would say, okay, here's what the government says about ivermectin. It's useless and and potentially dangerous and you shouldn't take it. And uh, even suggesting is it's kind of a bad thing to to take ivermectin when you have COVID. Not not quite in those words. So the story would cover the government's perspective by all means, but it would also cover the other perspective. They would talk to doctors who say, look, I've treated patients successfully. Uh, Dr. Nagase is one example of a doctor who's been quite public about this, probably prepared to do media interviews, right? Do media contact him to ask him about the success? There's all kinds of, uh, now, mind you, there are also a lot of medical doctors that are prescribing ivermectin or giving away ivermectin that are doing so secretly because uh, they don't want to get prosecuted by their unscientific uh medieval Neanderthal colleges of physicians and surgeons, which are anti-science institutions that suppress free speech and free debate. Uh, so doctors are living in fear. But there's right. an example. I was going to say that. Yeah. If the government is directing, uh, if the government is directing Twitter on what the government deems to be 
uh, correct and incorrect arguments. Okay, that you, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, we're, we're in, that's totalitarian. You're getting into the communist, Nazi, theocratic, whatever. You know, there's there's many many different kinds of repressive regimes, and uh, but one of their common characteristics is that the regime decides on your behalf, decides for you what is true and false, and then sees to it that the viewpoints deemed to be false by the regime are suppressed. Actually, along that line, I just want to read a tweet by a guy named Noah Chartier. He's a, a writer for the Epoch Times, and uh, he wrote this after reading the, uh, the most recent Twitter files. Just finished this. Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter kind of feels like a modern tech version of the overthrow of an authoritarian regime with secret Stasi files now unleashed. It's like a digital Berlin wall has fallen and commies are weeping. It does feel a little bit like that, you know, that uh, you know, we're, we're in a situation where a lot of things are coming out very quickly because something like a Berlin wall has fallen. I lived through that and I remember that, you know, it was surprising things coming out daily all the time. Um, you know, this is quite a time to be alive. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. This is a source of encouragement for me. And I think for you and for our listeners, I, I've been mentioning in uh, in recent weeks, I've done a fair amount of uh, traveling. Um, a lot of that is is uh, with a focus on fundraising. So, you know, I'm based in Calgary, but in the past three and a half months, uh, I've been I've had three trips to British Columbia, three trips to Ontario, uh, Toronto and Ottawa, and uh, one trip through Saskatchewan, hitting four different cities, and then... Uh, a trip to Edmonton as well. And so, cause you know, there's an old saying, you can't save the world if you can't pay the rent. So this has been really good to go out and meet with donors. Now, some people are discouraged. And one thing I've mentioned in all of these meetings, uh, including public meetings and some of the more, you know, private, private meetings over dinner, but the truth will vanquish the lie. And so here we, what, what do we see happening before our very eyes with Twitter is that we have we have these lies put out by Twitter previously uh, for many years saying we are, you know, unbiased, we're objective, we are not advancing an agenda, we are not promoting a viewpoint, all of these things that they've been claiming, uh, which were false. And we knew that they were false. I mean, so, some of our listeners might remember Megan Murphy, client of the Justice Center. Megan Murphy is a feminist and um, she is also been vilified in some circles as a TERF, which is a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. And a trans-exclusionary radical feminist is a feminist who believes in kind of the, you know, smash the patriarchy and, you know, women are oppressed and we need more equality for women and all of that feminist stuff. But they also say women deserve to have uh, their own female-only safe spaces like bathrooms, washrooms, locker rooms, change rooms, and biological males should not be allowed into women's change rooms. Biological males should not be allowed into the um, sports, uh, right? You know, whether it's tennis or swimming or mixed martial arts, uh, we shouldn't have these, these physical males that are going into the sports arena and getting gold medals every time because, you know, physically uh, men are stronger and have more stamina, et cetera, et cetera, for, for most sports. Anyway, so this is the, this is kind of the, I'm summarizing the Megan Murphy's, Megan Murphy's viewpoint. 
that there should be safe spaces for women. And uh, I, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I would venture uh, an educated guess that Megan Murphy would also say that women should have their own female-only sporting events. So she was going to speak at the public library in Vancouver and had booked a room. And then there was you know, social media uproar and people put pressure on the Vancouver Public Library to cancel the talk, claiming that Megan Murphy was hateful. And this sadly, that there's danger in banning hate speech, right? You can, whoever's deemed to be hateful by whoever screams the loudest is effectively uh, canceled off of the stage. Anyway, Twitter banned Megan Murphy. Uh, I don't know. I think she's, maybe she's getting back on now, now that Elon Musk has taken over the company. Twitter banned Megan Murphy uh, as a turf, as a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. This happened years ago. That shows already that Twitter was biased, uh, ideologically biased, because they only want to put forward uh, this uh, progressive transgender ideology, and they don't want to put forward opposing views. Now we see with, uh, with Elon Musk taking over Twitter, uh, we see the truth triumph over the lies. So we should be very encouraged by this. Yeah, I totally forgot about that issue. That's another one that, that's on the list. We're probably going to get to that eventually as well. I'm hoping they get to the COVID files sooner rather than later, but uh, Musk has said that we're going to get there pretty quick in a big way. So, man, you know, I... And the Trump files, the Trump files, that, that there were deliberate, yeah, yeah. deliberate attempts by Twitter to silence Trump, although I suspect that those efforts, uh, and I, I do not follow Twitter closely, but I suspect the efforts to suppress Trump would have been <laughs> pretty difficult because he had, uh, how many millions of followers did he have? Oh, I don't even know, but, but that's just come out in the in the last two releases. The Barry Weiss thing was number two, and there's been two others since then, one by Matt Taibbi and one by uh, the Schellenberg guy that showed the banning of Trump. And what what they really showed was how they were just kind of making up the rules as they went along. They couldn't find a rule that sort of fit the situation, so they just decided to make things up as they went along. And I suspect that this is kind of how they were operating you know, they, their terms of service were, uh, well, shall we say, flexible and sort of met whatever ideological yardstick they wanted to use at the moment, you know. So, I mean, that's the, that, that has been the key thing, I think, that's come up with the last two on Trump is the fact that they were, they were really improvising. And also that one guy, this Yoel Roth guy, was the uh, kind of like the, the head arbiter of the, the whole situation. And there's a lot of... Uh, interesting things in his background as well that other researchers are bringing out as well. I don't want to go into this because it's a family show, but yeah, they're digging up some really interesting stuff. So yeah, they're, uh, they're going at it pretty hard now. And it's, it's uh, as Dr. J. Bhattacharya said in his tweets, uh, following his exposure in the Twitter files, you know, the best uh, disinfectant is sunshine. And yeah, that's where we're at right now. Yeah, it's interesting this when you talk about the uh, Twitter and other organizations making up the rules as they go along. It made me think of some of these uh, free speech battles for for campus free speech in the early days of the Justice Center, so around 2010 to 2015. And I defended students um, 
that were found guilty of non-academic misconduct by the University of Calgary simply for having peacefully expressed their opinions on campus. And they had this uh, this pro-life display, which was quite graphic and shocking and disturbing. And uh, the university told them that, that they, they couldn't uh, put this display up on campus anymore. And if they did, they would be guilty of non-academic misconduct. But then when you start probing for reasons, it's really interesting. They would, they would say, well, you know, because these are uh, these are very shocking, disturbing images. So we don't allow shocking, disturbing images on campus. But then the, on our side, we confronted them with the university tolerating some very graphic, shocking photos of um, torture victims, uh, members of the Falun Gong religious sect in communist China who had been tortured. And there were photographs of uh, these people that had been tortured, very disturbing photographs. Uh, the other thing the university had on campus was a face of uh, a photograph of a man's face after going through a windshield of a car after a car crash. This was part of a pro seatbelt wearing campaign. So as a, as a way to encourage people to wear seatbelts, they had this, this like horrifically, like really disturbing photograph of a guy's face after having gone through a windshield. And there's all these, there's gashes and cuts and it looks absolutely horrific. It's just disturbing. And then uh, it says, the caption says, without a seatbelt, things can get really ugly. And so here's the university uh, saying, well, you know, we can't, we support, we, we've got this policy against, uh, you know, any kind of, gore, graphic, blood, medical, you know, disturbing, whatever. And yet they themselves were quite fine with gory photographs, provided it had nothing to do with abortion, right? So there's no, they're making up the rules as they go along. And uh, that's what you see. Well, we saw some of that at the Public Order Emergency Commission, you know, the federal government when it, towards the end of the six weeks, when it became clear that the, you know, the evidence is suggesting very strongly that the government of Canada did not comply with the Emergencies Act when it invoked the Emergencies Act and declared there to be a national emergency. The evidence suggests that the evidence is just not there to, to support, to provide a legal basis to the government for justly, legally declaring a national emergency. So what does the federal government do? They start to shift gears and they have National Security Advisor Jody Thomas takes the stand and says, well, you know, it doesn't really matter if we follow the act or not, because, you know, we have to have a far broader view of, of you know, you could, you, you should be able to declare a national emergency, you know, because of economic insecurity. <laughs> so, oh, here's the thing. The parallel that I found, I, I was reading this thing about Trump and why they, when they were making up justifications for bombing him off of Twitter, one of them was, well, you know, we can't give him his third strike, but we can give him a strike if we can say that there's the potential for inciting violence. And I immediately thought of the Public Order Emergency Commission and the justification that kept coming up from the Canadian federal government that, well, we prevented so much because we had this emergency order in effect. In other words, there was this great threat of potential uh, things happening, and uh, so that was that was justification, right? So it was for future events, and we saw the same thing with Twitter, right? So this seems to be 
uh, something of a trend, I would say, you know, the idea that things could have happened. And so we have taken action now to prevent them. And that somehow justifies these draconian measures, whether it be censorship or public order emergency. But that could be a pretext for censoring all speech, because it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what the speech is. You could say, well, you know, if we don't nip it in the bud right now, it's going to turn into some sort of violent action. Using that logic, this came up, I was speaking to a small group in Calgary uh, last week. I was invited as a luncheon speaker. And if somebody criticized Alberta Premier Danielle Smith and said that she was the worst premier that Alberta's ever had, you know, that could cause other people to also think that she's the worst premier that we've ever had. And then that could lead to some people not wanting to wait for another, you know, four, five, six months for an election. And it could lead to people getting really angry. And it could lead to this large demonstration at the McDougal Center, uh, which is the premier's office in Calgary. Premier's off, obviously has an office in, in Edmonton in, in the legislative buildings, but for many decades, the Premier's Calgary office has been McDougal Centre. Um, so you could have these riots where people start to set fire to the McDougal Centre because they hate uh, Premier Smith, all because one person said that she's the worst Premier that Alberta's ever had. So therefore, in order to prevent the arson and the violence, if somebody says that she's a terrible Premier, we need to nip that in the bud and silence that person in order to prevent violence. Do you get my logic here? Oh yeah. So <laughs> like any, they, any they speech have... on any issue, you could say, well, let's, let's shut it down because it could lead to, uh, you know, and it's true. Like, yeah, well, yeah, it could, it could, but uh, are we just going to have the government shutting down speech left, right and center for whatever, you know, the, the, the politicians or bureaucrats of the moment, happen to dislike and we're going to shut down speech because it could lead to yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's just, it, it is sick that, that this actually, totalitarian. it's totalitarian. The other yeah, thing that's related to it, right? I'm, I'm reading, yeah. uh, I'm reading currently, I'm reading a book by a uh, Dutch pastor who was spent time in the German concentration camps of Dachau. And he was, Sent there, interestingly enough, it was for standing up for Christian education because when the Nazis took over the Netherlands, they, of course, wanted to de-Christianize the, uh, the, the schools. Uh, similar efforts in, in Germany to, you know, varying degrees of success or lack of success. That's a whole big topic. And this pastor, along with others, said, no, we're not going to submit to the Nazis. We're going to maintain our Christian schools. And for this, and he preached a sermon on it and uh, ended up, first he was imprisoned in some Dutch prisons, and then he was shipped off to, shipped off to Dachau. One of the things he mentions, uh, he's t- talking about the different groups of prisoners. You know, they, they're communists, they're social democrats, there were Jews, there were petty criminals, there were big time criminals. And so they had these different, you know, categories of people that, that were all in this uh, in this concentration camp. And one of them was called preventive custody and there were prisoners there who had not been convicted of any crime 
But the government felt very strongly that they were the type of person who would be likely to engage in anti-Nazi activism. And so here we have the potential thing again. It's like, well, you haven't, you haven't actually spoken out against the Nazis, but we, we think that you're the kind of person that would be likely to do so. We think that based on you know, our assessment of you, uh, you would likely you would likely be involved in the resistance in the underground. You're likely to make discouraging remarks about Adolf Hitler. So we're going to lock you up as a uh, preventive measure. And I think you could probably list off the rights that we have within our charter and our legal system that are meant specifically to prevent that. You know, things like innocent until proven guilty, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole list of protections that we need to maintain in order to protect the free society. And the, the free society is the productive society. It is the one that leads to, uh, well, I guess, you know, the greatest benefit to all as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, we need to, we need to defend these things. And the, the challenge is to continue slowly but surely to communicate to the general public that whenever rights and freedoms are taken away, it's, it's for a pretext, a justification provided by the government that sounds good to a large number of people. And this is where people go off the rails, right? It, it's, that, it's the fact that you know, people will say, well, yeah, okay, so the communists in Russia, they suppressed all of, our, all of the rights and freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, conscience, the, the right of parents to educate their own children, freedom of peaceful assembly, like all, all these rights and freedoms. N- not that they were flourishing under the czars. I mean, to be fair, okay, uh, to be fair, it was not a, a flourishing classical liberal society <laughs> under the czars prior to 1917 either. Okay. But, but the communists said, uh, we're going to save you from capitalist oppression and save you from the oppression of the czars. So we have we got to take away your rights and freedoms in the French revolution. The people that were chopping off thousands of heads of thousands of Frenchmen, it was the committee for public safety. It's We got to keep the public safe. So we're going to, you're going to kill thousands of people in order to keep everybody safe. Now, uh, and then, of course, you know, Hitler in Germany, uh, I'm going to keep you safe from the communists and the Jews. Bear in mind that the communists were very much feared in Germany uh, and France and Britain and, and all over Europe and in the United States, all over the world. The communists were feared because they had taken power in in Russia slash Soviet Union. And so there are lots of Germans and Frenchmen and Brits who were scared of communism. And it's especially scary when you've got the communists in your own country are getting 20% of the vote or 25% of the vote or 30% of the vote or 15% of the vote in your own country. You got people voting for the communists makes it even more scary uh, than, than if you had, you know, communist support down at 1%. And so Hitler's measures uh, to remove the freedoms of speech and, and association uh, and peaceful assembly and religion and conscience to remove these these freedoms from the Germans. It was predicated uh, on a permanent basis. It was all about we're protecting you from the communists. We got to protect you from these evil communists who are really terrible. So we're going to take away your rights and freedoms. Now, what people that is the flu. You know, now where where the disconnect comes in is a lot of Canadians would say, okay, what you know. What the communists did in in, uh, 
Russia and the Soviet Union uh, and, and China and, uh, you know, Pol Pot in, in Cambodia and what what the various uh, Nazi and fascist regimes, and they've got Franco in Spain, Mussolini in Italy, Hitler in Germany, and lots of other repressive regimes, what the theocrats have been doing in Iran since 1979. I mean, you have a very repressive regime there. Canadians will look at that and say, well, yeah, but those things are bad. I mean, you know, establishing a theocracy that's going to impose one religion on everybody, that's a bad thing. So that's not a good reason to trample on rights and freedoms. And the communist notion of, of uh, you know, crushing, uh, stopping capitalist exploitation, that's been debunked. Uh, you know, life is not that simple. It's not all about class warfare. So that's not a good reason. And Hitler's crusade against the, the Jews and the communists, you know, well, that's not a worthwhile cause. So that wasn't right to suppress, uh, suppress rights and freedoms. And, and so there's this disconnect. You know, but, you know, when it comes to a virus... Well, my goodness, but, you know, let's let's all let's all get with the program and uh, let's let's really give up our rights and freedoms. Um, you know, it's going to take a long time and a lot of effort before people understand that it's in the moment when the government is promising safety as the pretext for taking away your rights and freedoms. In that moment, that is something that makes sense to a lot of people. And so, for example, in, in Germany in the 1920s and 30s, it did make sense to a lot of people that you would take very strong, aggressive measures to stop communism. And those measures could include taking away your freedoms of speech and, and religion and conscience and peaceful, peaceful assembly, because fighting communism is really important. And it was recognized as such by uh, probably the majority of Germans were very anti-communist and scared of communism. And so that was part of the dynamic by which they gave up their rights and freedoms because it was to fight communism, which was viewed as a worthwhile cause. So where do we end up now when we face these worthwhile causes? What, what do we have to do? Do we have to just fight for our rights based on theoretical charter rights? Uh, Speak truth to power. This, I guess. Speak truth to power. That's what Dr. Jay Bhattacharya did in 2020, hmm. 2021, 2022. And now we see the, the truth comes out. What if Dr. Jay Bhattacharya had gotten really discouraged in early 2020 because he was being shadow banned on uh, – on Twitter, or as, as some of the Twitter executives call it, visibility filtering, what if he had gotten discouraged and said, you know, the government establishment is against me, and, you know, the the Great Barrington Declaration, even though it's got tens of thousands of signatures on it, there's a lot of people who disagree with it, and I'm getting, uh, you know, not getting the word out as effectively on social media, so I give up and quit because I'm just discouraged because... This is futile because it's just not making a difference. He could have taken, and I'm, you know, I'm speculating. I, I, I've not had many discussions with him beyond, you know, an email exchange here or there. But he could have given in to discouragement, but instead he kept on speaking. And now here we are, uh, two, about two years and nine months later, and the evils of what Twitter was doing, the anti-science mentality of Twitter, the government efforts to shut down debate are now being exposed to the light. True, true. But it takes a lot of moxie, you have to admit. You know, you talked about earlier about doctors that are prescribing ivermectin on the sly because they don't want to face 
the blowback that the potential of being censored by their colleges, you know, I mean, I know you can understand it entirely. I know a doctor in Calgary who operates uh, on social media under a false name because she could get in trouble with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta for saying things like transgender ideology is harming children. And when children are encouraged, you know, at a young age of, of 12 or 13 to go on to puberty blockers and eventually get their surgery to get get their breasts removed or, or get their uh, their male genitalia cut off or whatever the case might be, and that this is not good for children. And that, you know, the research shows that, that more than 80% of uh, kids, children and teenagers who are unhappy with their, their body, you know, feeling like they're a girl trapped in the body of a boy or a boy trapped in the body of a girl, that these kids are, by the time they reach the age of 18, 80% or more are very uh, comfortable with their with the gender that with the body that, that that they were born with the gender that they were born with, and so anyway, all all of this to say, this doctor will not state these things publicly uh, because she would be attacked by the College of Physicians and Surgeons would would go after her, and she fears that they would remove her license. That is the state of uh, of free speech in Canada today. Do you think Canada is going to be much affected by this uh, Twitter release? Do you think, uh, because I know that uh, the government has been making efforts to sort of control social media uh, recently, and it seems to be coinciding with the uh, freeing of Twitter. Yeah, and it's the same It's the same refrain, right? Why, why would the government take away our free speech rights on social media in whole or in part? Well, it's to keep us safe. Because, you know, Kevin, you and I are threatened by disinformation. You know, we are so vulnerable and gullible that we might just fall for some falsehood and swallow it whole. And then we would both get hurt by, I don't know, not getting our our, our seventh booster shot or something like that. So the government has to protect us from disinformation. It's for our own good. Right. We, might, yep. we might end up drinking fish tank cleaner or something. Yeah, like I mean, you know, it's, it's we we got to be protected, and uh, you know, the as a as a prime minister uh, testified at the Public Order Emergencies Commission. You know, his his job is to keep us safe. Yeah, whatever that means. Right. <laughs> well, unfortunately, it seems to mean uh, taking control of the internet. To my question. Do you think that uh, what's happening in the United States will have much of an impact here? Of course, I remember uh, Theo Fleury, who had been on this podcast at one point, he tweeted out after the first Twitter files release that, uh, hey, throw us a bone here in Canada. We need a little more free speech. (laughs) He wanted to see some information about Canada. Now, I haven't seen anything other than sort of this tangential thing because of Dr. J. Bhattacharya. I haven't seen anything else at this point. I'm hoping to see more, but do you think just what's happened so far is going to have some kind of impact here in Canada? Well, hugely, because Canadians use Twitter, and I'm making an assumption here that, that Twitter is one company with one boss and one headquarters, and it's got one set of policies for the entire world. Unless there's a separate Canadian Twitter entity that's going to establish its own rules and it's going to, you know, uh, it's going to shadow ban or... Uh, visibility filter, uh, you know, bad people like me that are spreading 
disinformation. Unless unless Canadian Twitter has its own corporate headquarters that are going to take their marching orders from uh, you know from from people like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, then basically what goes on on Twitter in in Canada is going to be we're going to have more free speech on Twitter in Canada than what we have been having. And bear in mind that that Megan Murphy, this uh, you know trans exclusionary radical feminist, uh, is Canadian. Right. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm seeing a lot more freedom on Twitter now. So you're okay. So you're you're watching it more. Than, you're already seeing a difference, Kevin, on uh, Canadian. Oh yeah, hugely, hugely. You know, I uh, I follow the account that uh, was set up for the uh, Public Order Emergency Commission and the, all the people that were followed during that. And of course, you know, we've got some very Twitter, active Twitter users uh, within the Justice Center as well, you know, that have their own accounts and tweet like crazy. Uh, you know, there's, there's quite a few of them out there. Not only do they tweet, but they also sort of bring other people into the conversation because they they end up either retweeting or following them. So it's it's been spreading and it sure looks a lot freer than it has in the past. And, you know, I may even sign up for my own account now. I'm <laughs> not very enthusiastic about you know, setting up social media accounts because I end up getting interested for about a week and then getting a little bored with them. But I tell you, I've been following this, uh, this one and it's, it looks like it's getting a little exciting out there. So the information, it, it, it becomes a source of information, right? Because you've got all these people connected and they, they keep bringing exposure to different issues and different perspectives. I mean, it becomes more fascinating than skimming the news simply because of the variety and the reach it has. So, yeah, I can see it having a huge impact. Now, I just want to put this in here. This is pure speculation on my part. But one of the things that did come up during the Public Order Emergency Commission hearings was that there was some interaction between the Canadian government and the FBI in the United States. Now, I didn't hear much more of that. But because the FBI keeps popping up in this Twitter thing, I tell you, I am expecting to see something come out that way. I mean, that's just my feeling. And so I'll just put that out there. Uh, of course, you can anybody can call me out on it. But, you know, I, I think that it's an important part of the story. And maybe Theo Fleury will get his wish. <laughs> well, I can tell you, if... If it's true that the FBI either directly or indirectly approached Twitter and tried to either tell them or suggest to them what they should or should not be doing, if that's true, I would anticipate or you know venture a guess that the new CEO, Elon Musk, would see to it that that uh, gets exposed to the light of day based on what we've seen from, uh, from him so far. And bearing in mind that as a general rule, not always guaranteed, but as a general rule, Past behavior is the best indicator of future behavior. So if we've seen certain things already, then um, I think that'll, uh, that'll come to light. Speaking of the uh, Public Emergencies Commission, I want to talk about two related things. One is a column recently published uh, in the Western Standard, written by me, seven takeaways from the Public Order Emergency Commission. So maybe I'll just run through those briefly. So it's published on the Western Standard. I'm sure Kevin will post a link. And uh, what I see is the, the the top seven takeaways. Firstly, in all the evidence put before the commission in six weeks' time, uh, there's no evidence of violence or violent crime. 
in the words of one Ontario provincial police intelligence officer, a certain Pat Morris, he said, the lack of violent crime was shocking. I mean, even in the arrests and charges, considering the whole thing in totality, I think there were 10 charges for violent crime, six of which were against police officers. So the only violence there was, you know, after the emergency act is is declared and you've got police riding on horses, trampling on an elderly woman, and you've got the tear gas and the, the you know, truncheons and people getting beaten, uh, the kind of thing that you the kind of things that are normal in repressive regimes. And, uh, but you've got six weeks of no violence, which is amazing when you think about thousands of people there with very strongly held opinions against the mandatory vaccination policies. And it goes on for weeks and you don't have the kind of violence that we saw with, you know, the G20 in Toronto in uh, back in 2010, where um, a lot of, uh, damage to businesses and cars and, you know, over a thousand arrests. I mean, you just compare the two. Another major takeaway, the second one is that the prime minister and cabinet ministers decided ahead of time before the freedom convoy came to Ottawa, that these guys were dangerous white supremacist, neo-Nazi, dangerous people. They determined that narrative before the first trucker came to Ottawa. And I think that tells you a lot. Uh, about intellectual honesty in this day and age where like, you're not even going to wait for these protesters to come to town and uh, see what they're actually like. You've, you've already created this narrative ahead of time that, that they're dangerous, racist, criminal, etc. Right. They actually had some text shown there that said, well, maybe we can craft a January 6th narrative around this. Yes. This was before any truck hit. You before know, any truck came there. Was, and we saw Trudeau yeah. repeatedly uh, trying try to make this link as if the truckers in Ottawa were somehow the same as this, uh, you know, U.S. mob on, on January the 6th, 2021, that, that stormed the Capitol building. The third interesting aspect that we saw throughout the six weeks is that there's a contradiction in the government narrative. On the one hand, they said these truckers are so disorganized that we cannot negotiate with them because we cannot meet with them as a group because they're just completely disorganized. And somehow they are so well-coordinated and highly organized and have sophisticated logistics and uh, so that they're actually a threat to national security because they are so well-organized, right? Well, you can't have it both ways. If they're so organized that they're a threat to national security, then you can negotiate with them. Or conversely, if they're, if they're in complete disarray, how could they possibly be a threat to national security? Just, just ridiculous. Uh, fourth key uh, takeaway from the commission is that the federal government ignored negotiations and attempts at peaceful resolution. Fifthly, there's exposure on how the government was less than honest in terms of the information it released to the commission, which is information released to the public. It's kind of one and the same. Uh, in particular, there is a document from the Biden administration where the Americans offered to send tow trucks to Canada which was relevant because the whole tow trucks thing was a big issue throughout the six weeks of testimony because the government's position was, well, we, we need to call a national emergency because we can't deal with the situation. We can't deal with the situation because we can't find tow trucks or we can't find the people willing to operate the tow trucks. So we can't clear the streets of Ottawa. So therefore we need to declare a national emergency because we have no tow trucks. And it was one of the, 
narrative. Oh, that went on for a long time, them talking about that. They even had some bureaucrats up there talking like for half a day about the tow truck strategy. These were federal bureaucrats. And then to have it all just go up in smoke with this. It was actually a note in one of the uh, PMO's uh, notebooks. He was he was taking notes during the call with Biden. And that's when they offered the tow trucks. That was redacted based on irrelevancy until the last yeah. day. Do you imagine? And, uh, yeah. See, the federal government yeah. says that this American offer for tow trucks is irrelevant when the whole – I shouldn't say the whole, but but a major part of the rationale for invoking uh, a national emergency is that they can't get tow trucks to to uh, to get these these trucks moved. By the way, for the record, lanes were always left open. There was always one lane left open for the ambulance, fire truck, police. So it was never completely shut down. Uh, and also, just as a reminder, uh, there are very few people that live in downtown Ottawa. I think out of out of more than a million people in the greater Ottawa Hull, there's something like 5,000 people that live downtown. And yes, some of them suffered some inconvenience, but there is no blockade. Uh, there's no occupation where the truckers said, this is now our territory. It wasn't like that. Uh, it was very much that, yes, the traffic was slowed down uh, a bit. Uh, but there was always one lane left open. But it's outrageous that the federal government would say that uh, uh, it's it's not relevant that the Biden administration offered to to send tow trucks to Canada to help out. Uh, and it was only at the last minute that the commissioner ordered that to be kind of uncovered, uh, so to speak. Yeah, we had actually had him on this podcast talk about that. He was the one who discovered it. While Rob was about to go up and question Trudeau, and uh, yeah, they they changed their entire questioning based on his discovery. Yeah, that was a pretty cool moment. So yeah, and then the last point is that at towards the end of six weeks, the federal government still had not given a legal explanation as to why the facts actually met the requirements in the Emergencies Act. Uh, that's not been established. So we'll see what kind of a report emerges, but but bear in mind, the Justice Center already started a court action uh, in February of 2022, right after the Emergencies Act was declared, about a week or 10 days later, we started a court action. So we are seeking a court declaration to the effect that uh, the Prime Minister did not have a legal basis for declaring an emergency. I don't know whether this was related to that case, but uh, the Justice Center released or sent out a press release saying that charges against one of the protesters was dropped. Yeah, this was this was a case out of that out of Ottawa. The charges were related to the the public order emergency based on the province, which was declared for the Windsor Bridge. So it didn't really apply to what was going on in Ottawa, and there were no notes as well. So, yeah, this was this was one where we hired outside counsel. Yeah. I see. Yeah, so that was very, yeah that came out in December. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I want to reiterate again, I'm, I'm very grateful to all the Canadians that have supported the Justice Centre financially with, you know, whether whether it's a, a $10,000 gift or a $1,000 gift or $500 or $100 or whatever people are, are, are giving, uh, you've made it possible to provide legal representation, in particular the criminal defence of so many people uh, that were wrongfully accused of committing a crime when all they did was to peacefully exercise their charter rights and freedoms 
to, to express their opinions, to assemble peacefully, to associate with each other. So we've had we've had success in in the past year or the past year and a half. All kinds of tickets. We'll have a grand tally at, at some point, but it's kind of a work in progress. But there have been dozens of tickets that have been dropped, and and tens of thousands, probably grand totals amounting to hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines that people would have had to ha- have paid, but for getting the legal representation from the justice center that ultimately is paid for by the donors. So again, whether you're giving you know a hundred dollars a year or ten thousand dollars a year or somewhere in between. Uh, it, it's all every bit helps to to fight back against this uh, government oppression and tyranny, and part of that fight is to provide legal representation to to people that are wrongfully charged with a crime when you know they haven't committed any crime. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that tally. You know, these things just keep popping up all the time, and so uh, yeah, I haven't seen any big list, but uh, I. You know, I can tell you that uh, every time I see one, I go, well, you know, this is definitely worth it. You know, so I j- just one thing I wanted to bring up before the end. There is something that has been filed now at the Public Order Emergency Commission. Uh, this is uh, what it's not really a final report. It's the the briefs from the different parties. So I'm just right. Yeah, I've got the Justice Center brief uh, before me. It is uh, I, it'll be posted on our, our website, www.jccf.ca. Uh, by the time this podcast is released, but uh, it's it's 49 pages and it goes through a brief factual overview of what happened in February. Uh, looks at the commission's mandate and the um, the assessment framework for invoking the public order emergency and uh, what the national emergency needs to exceed uh, provincial authority, threats to the security of Canada. And then looking into the cabinet's reasons for invoking the Emergencies Act, and uh, and then goes into this very long analysis. And so we argue that the invocation of a national emergency was unlawful, uh, did not meet the criteria set out in the legislation. Uh, there is no element of quote serious violence quote unless you move into the magical mystical realm that. The Prime Minister Trudeau seems to want to operate in that that of the potential. There's potential for serious violence. Well, okay, in that case, you can declare a national emergency at, at any time for any reason because there's always this potential, right? So he he mentioned you know over and over and over again this potential for serious violence, potential for serious violence. Well, a- again, that's not what the Act says. The Act says that there has to be serious violence of the kind that we saw, for example, in. Uh, 52 years ago in October of 1970, when the uh, Quebec Liberation Front, the FLQ, Front de Libération du Québec, was putting bombs in mailboxes and set off a bomb at the Montreal Stock Exchange and uh, kidnapped a Quebec cabinet minister and killed him and kidnapped a British trade commissioner and held him hostage and so on. I mean, that was serious violence that was actually happening in Quebec at that time. And you will still hear uh, a lot of people argue that that even then it was a mistake on the part of the then Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau to have uh, invoked the War Measures Act. So right, and they were trying to make it a higher standard when they brought in the Emergencies Act. Right, that was part of the remedy they wanted to bring it the standard up, and instead we get this. Oh well, you know it could have been 
could have been bad things happening. You know, in other words, they seem to have gone the absolute opposite direction of what was intended. And I think even Perrin Beatty, who was there with the uh, crafting of the Emergencies Act, has come out and said as much. So, I mean, that, you know, adds substance to that. Absolutely. Uh, claim as well. So the, the, the CSIS Canadian Security and Intelligence Service assessed that there's no threat to the security of Canada. So that's been established. So there's no serious endangerment of the lives, health, or safety of Canadians. There's no threat to the sovereignty or territorial integrity of Canada. So the definitions of the Act were not met. So that's the, uh, the first uh, 30 pages or so of our, uh, our submissions. And then uh, the other big argument is that there were other legal tools available to the authorities. Um, I won't repeat these. We've, we've talked about this, that the uh, city of Ottawa, the province of Ontario, could have done all kinds of legal tools that could have been used that were not used. And so the existing powers of the, the province and the city had not been exhausted. And so there's no reasonable grounds to believe that an emergency existed. And so that's going to be posted online, our 49-page submission to the commission. And then along with that, the Freedom Convoy, which is uh, a a corporation that was set up in February of 2022 that incorporates um, some of the truckers. So they had their counsel there. Uh, That was was, uh, Brendan Miller and uh, Bathsheba Vandenberg, were on for the um, for the Freedom Convoy people. They also have filed a support uh, report with the commission, and that also is going to be posted on the uh, on the website of the Justice Center. All right. So good conclusion. Good conclusions uh, to all the testimony and uh, wrapping up. So yeah, I'm glad that uh, we get to see that right away. Looking forward to it. Okay, I think at this point we can call it in to episode 48 of Just with John Carpe. Covered a lot of territory, and you know things are going to be changing in the next week. Uh, I know that there's going to be more information coming out on these Twitter files. Who knows where we're going to be at in a week's time. But I'm glad to have you here for this week, and uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. All right, have a great week, Kevin. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye.